I think the hardest thing, particularly at the early, early stages, is being noticed, having anyone pay attention to you. You need to break through by being incredibly whatever it is that you are. And so when you look at the companies, they embrace the essence of what they are. You can focus on what your key differentiators are and your key attributes. What if you had one person? They don't have to be senior. They need to be hungry and they need to really understand and care about what you're doing and the ability to do you enough of a service. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. Today, we're recording from the Facebook headquarters in Menlo Park, and I'm joined by Karen Marooney, the VP of Global Communications at Facebook. For the past almost eight years, Karen's been at Facebook overseeing both the main property, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Oculus. So that's a big job. Karen co-founded Outcast Communications prior to her work at Facebook, which is a San Francisco PR firm that rapidly became the go-to PR firm for technology companies. And her clients, while at Outcast, included Facebook, Yahoo, Netflix, Amazon, VMware, and Salesforce. So quite a roster. Karen's also a board member at Zendesk, which is where I first got to know her, and is an advisor to UCSF's Benioff Children's Hospital. So she does good work as well. Though Karen's a founder, today we're talking to her in her capacity as a communications executive and someone who's worked with legendary startups. So this is a salon episode. She's been helping with some of the best-known branding campaigns and communications campaigns in tech history. And she's also helped companies through many crises, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get to talk about both the highs and lows today. So, Karen, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. In your time at Outcast, which was your PR firm that you co-founded, you obviously worked with many startups. What was the biggest challenge that you saw startups having with respect to communications, and what types of pain points did you see them encounter most frequently? Yeah, and I think of the time at Outcast, being a founder of anything always has that special place in your heart. Yeah. So I'm, I really relate to all things foundry and the highs and lows that go with that. I think the hardest thing, particularly at the early, early stages, is being noticed, having anyone pay attention to you. Because there are so many companies, and if you are not established or don't have a ticker symbol. It is really hard to get attention and visibility in this crowded space. I can attest to that, having worked with many startups. Okay, so if you're a founder, then what would you recommend people focus on first? Should they focus on trying to build a brand or instead focus on like, hey, what's my comms or marketing strategy going to be? Or is there something else they should focus on first with respect to, to letting the outside world know they exist? 
Yeah, I think that it always depends what your product is and what your goals are. So it's good to take a step back because it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all for companies. If you're a consumer product or you're trying to have everyday people use your app or your service, if you're an enterprise company and it's B2B, there's really different things that you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to get funding, if you're trying to get employees, it's important to stack rank what your needs are because I think the answer usually is yes, I want to have, I need it for recruiting and at some point I'll need funding or mm. that will mean investors at some point or I'm going to need customers. Is it consumer or are they paying? I would always take a step back and stack rank your order of need because everybody says yes. But given that then, if you know what is most important to you, it will help you understand how you should spend your limited resources in terms of selling that product or attracting that recruit, or is it that you want to make sure that the VCs know who you are funding-wise. Mm-hmm. So it, it does really matter where you are and what your bigger need is. Okay, so know your audience yeah. and figure and your, out what your, your priorities. Time, and your time frame, because yeah. things will change depending on where you are in, in your cycle. Hmm. I want to dig in a little bit to brand building. That is an area that I think is really difficult for most startups, particularly in technology. What have you seen that works best for startups as they try to build brand? And and you've discussed this brand lens model, taglines and attributes, differentiators, actions. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is that a a process you recommend that founders go through as they're trying to figure out what their brand is and how to communicate its, its, its values? Yeah, I think that, okay, first of all, There's something called buzzword bingo. I mean, (laughs) I call it buzzword bingo. I think that everybody should be nodding. You know, if you find yourself and you're saying enough of things of scalable and the ables, if it has too many of those, flexible, scalable, the label, you know, stop. Just nobody wants it. Please, you're killing all of us. So really watch that you need to break through by being incredibly whatever it is that you are. Mm -hmm. And so... When you look at the companies, they embrace the essence of what they are. And a type of exercise, I call it a brand lens, where you can focus on what your key differentiators are and your key attributes. So you can, at the very, very early stage, hone in on what are the three things that our product and our company is uniquely differentiated by. You know, Mm -hmm. three highest level things. Then what are these attributes that you want people to think of when they think of your brand and your company. Mm. And to take the time and the energy to nail those down as a founder unit is incredibly important. If you go into a Google office, you'll have bright colors and beanbags chairs and lava lamps, and you look at their product, they use colors, and it says, I feel lucky. Like It has a very fun, approachable, that goes through almost everything that they do. Mm-hmm. At Facebook, there's more of a hacker sense. Like Mm -hmm. These things come through, and it's important that you pull them through on purpose. They can help also identify like what it is that you'll be spending your time on and how you should think about your brand when you go into more elaborate marketing. How prescriptive should a founder or founding team be about their brand versus kind of letting it evolve? You know, like, is this the first thing a founding team should start talking about, or should they go a little while, see how the company's developing, and then figure out what the brand is. And, and, yeah. Well, the real deal is that the brand is evolving and the brand is whether or not you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. So 
you are building it every time you walk into your office, every time you pick up the phone, every time you talk to somebody, every time somebody interacts with your product, it's happening. So there will be different types of people that will say, now I need to articulate what's already happening, or I want to articulate it first to make sure it happens. But it's already happening. And I'm not saying one is better than the other, it's just the reality. I think that you can't say one thing and do another. They have to absolutely be aligned. So mm. you can say, you know, I'm going to be an incredibly fun brand, but you're not a fun person and the interaction <laughs> with the product is not at all fun. Don't pick fun. It's just not going to be one of your attributes. That's okay. They have to be connected to what the product experience is. And if you are the founder, it has to also fit you. Mm. You can't have them be discordant. Interesting. Okay, so brand is almost an extension of personality of the founder or founding team in some way. In some way. Okay. Yeah, they can't be in conflict. They can't be in conflict. That's a really interesting it doesn't, framework. It's not, you know, Elon Musk doesn't have to be Tesla, but you couldn't have it be separate. And does the brand, given that you, you've mentioned the importance of sort of stack ranking, what your needs are and you know to whom the brand needs to stand for something mm-hmm. whether it be people you're trying to recruit or your own employee base or potential funding sources or customers or partners can a startup get away with having a few different sort of brand personalities or do you really have to consolidate around one that has to work for each of those constituents one okay so every once in a while you got to throw one word answer in. <laughs> That's powerful. All <laughs> there right. There you go. You floored me. <laughs> it was Okay. You can have different flavors, but no, it's not as if I can show in one, you know, one day I'm going to come in and I'm going to be Karen and I'm going to be you know, this Karen. I'm always Karen. I might present myself, might be better dressed one day. I might have a um, more coffee, but I'm still the same person. Mm-hmm. And the same is true for brands. You can't radically change, but you can modulate depending on what it is that your audience needs. But they have to still be from the same core. Got it. So let's, you know, in, in our startup here, we've developed a little bit of a brand. Most startups also crave a lot of attention, right? They'd love to get attention from the press. Uh, they often hire like an outside PR firm yeah. uh, to try to help and more often than not, end up pretty disappointed with the results. Yeah. Why is that? I think it's a combination of things. If I think about it, and I'm thinking of you, you fund companies, you need to know who they are, if you think they're promising, and there's all different ways that you're going to find out. It's word of mouth, it's through the press, it's all different. You have a great mm-hmm. network, though, mm-hmm. so you might, you might know about these before they even happen. But um, Constantly trying. I think... One of the questions is back to if you're going to hire any outside consultant, you have to know what it is and be realistic for what you're going to get. If you're just going to outsource your communications and want a lot of press and be super hands-off about it, a couple things are going to happen. You're not going to like the results. It's going to be super expensive, and at some point you'll get rid of your agency, Mm -hmm. no matter who they are. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really, when you're a founder and you're super, super busy, you are always looking for what you can outsource. I mean, this is what you need to do as a founder because you can't do everything. You can't outsource your brand, and you can help amplify it, But you're going to have to carve out a certain amount of your own personal time to make sure that it's doing what you want and you're putting enough energy in there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you recommend then there are some PR firms that 
as part of what they do and like their intake want to help you you know clarify your brand and and the message around it there are also firms that specialize in helping you you know build your brand and and um, personifying it in one way or another do you recommend working with third parties to to try to do that, or do you think it's it's uh, those are overkill for startups? Um, I think it always depends. It depends if there's a fit. It depends on your personality. It depends on the third party that you're working with. But I've found that third parties can be helpful because when you are too close to anything, you can't see the forest through the trees. So if they're good, they can help bring about what you want to already say. But if you think that you're going to bring them in and they're going to tell you something that you don't know, then no. They're going to help refine what you probably already know. And that's valuable if they're good. So how do you know if somebody's good and how do you try to get the most value out of a firm, a PR firm, if you're working with one? Well, I think people hire firms for for different reasons. There's Branding exercises, so help me articulate what and where we are in terms of a brand. There's media outreach. I want to reach more media, whether that's tech or business or consumer or a certain vertical. I can't build my staff fast enough or I can't recruit fast enough, so I need other arms and legs. A lot of people Mm -hmm. use it for that. Mm -hmm. I need somebody to handle my social presence. So I would really block out what it is that you're hiring and make sure that the people have a good track record of those areas Mm because some are great at media, some are great at branding, some are great at social, some are great at speech writing. It's always the people within any firm. It's like anything else. And be clear about what it is that you think the value exchange is that you're getting. Mm. So, first, I think it is really hard to evaluate if people are good. I'll give you yeah. a, like a real live example. Just the other day, I got an email from a VC friend who was asking on behalf of one of his startups whether or not a particular PR firm was good because that PR firm had used one of my companies as a reference. So, I reached out to the CEO of that company, of my company, and said, hey, is this PR firm one you'd recommend to others? A buddy of mine is asking, and he said, "Eh, they're okay." He said, "You know, for a certain, if they're small, okay, but they can they'll outgrow the firm." Then I asked the VP marketing of the same company the same question, and he said, "Oh, they're super. They're terrific." So <laughs> even within the same within company, the same, they had different views and it of the same depends PR firm. Who you're working with, so yeah. it's really. I think that the CEO probably wanted something, yeah. and the VP of marketing wanted something else. So. It's very important to align on goals okay. because you do see that a lot too, where what is it, the goal that you're trying. A, a pitfall that I see a lot of startups doing is they get into the, I call it the launch them and leave them. So they get really focused mm. on a launch, whether it's their company launch or a product launch, and everything is riding on that. And it needs to be big, it needs to be important, it needs to be everything. And I feel like, you know, it's a little star is born moment. I haven't seen that film yet, but it's probably going to be good. And I think people really miss on what a launch is and how to think about one of the most important pieces of advice is this is not a mic drop moment. This is not an iPhone. Like you (laughs) have to think about what it is that you're launching and then you better well know what the next thing is right after that. Hmm. I care a little bit about what you're launching. I care a lot more about the three things you do after that and when they are. Hmm. 
Yeah, I was going to pick up on that and ask you a little bit about launches because that's yeah. Order pizza, have a party. Yeah, but they really they're good forcing functions to get stuff done within your company. But I, I like what you said. You better know what Act Two, Three, and Four exactly. are going to be before you you go out to the world with Act One. Right. I think of it like a a race. You know, did you get a good start? Mm-hmm. You, sometimes you trip off the blocks. Mm-hmm. That's bad. It's harder to to run when you've tripped off the starter, but it's not impossible. And sometimes you get a really good start. But that doesn't necessarily mean much either. Yeah. So it's really important that you understand what that next act is. Sorry mm-hmm. to mix all these metaphors. No, no, but this is this is great. Um, if you don't celebrate your launches internally, you've really missed a very important moment. Okay, so so one thing about launches then that I, th- I think I'm hearing from you is they have meaning internally, huge, right? They, they help huge. they help galvanize and um, focus, prioritize. Focus you ship stuff when there's a date. Okay, so that's great. But what about to the external world? If it's not a mic drop moment, yeah, should you just jettison them all together and maybe is that a viable strategy to not do an external launch of a product or a company? Completely depends who you are again. I mean, WhatsApp never even announced product features mm. when they were starting up. They just released them. It depends who your user base is and what they care about and what your value proposition is. But it, So that sounds like it's tied back to the comments you made about building your brand and knowing yeah. who your constituents are and also what you said around hiring the right firm, firm. It, like n- right. know what your goals are. So you almost have to like, these all flow together. Yes. Yeah, really interesting. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, I've seen this moment time and again at startups where they work with an outside firm, maybe they switch to another one eventually, you know, that sort of runs its course and then people decide we're going to bring this in-house. Let's bring this in-house. We're paying so much. We can get better if we bring it in-house. Do you think that's a good thing? Is, is there a right time for that? Or what are some of the trigger points you think founders ought to be thinking about or looking for before they opt to, to bring this sort of black art in, in, in-house? In-house. People are everything. So finding good people, really hard. Finding good marketing people and comms people is really, really hard. Yep. One of the things that agencies do well traditionally is they have good media relationships. Mm -hmm. So that is a good use case for bringing an agency in as well as having help these people. They already have the relationships. That's their job. But you do want to look at internally, what if you had one person? They don't have to be senior. They need to be hungry and they need to really understand and care about what you're doing and the ability to either reach out to the media or do great writing or I would bring somebody in pretty early. The other thing people forget is if you have an agency and you're a founder and there's no other connective tissue between you, who knows what the agency is doing? Right. <laughs> so you've got you, to manage them, right? You do really need you really is one of those situations where they don't know you enough to do you enough of a service. Mm. So it is a disconnect to think that you can just do it with agency spend. I would look at bringing, it doesn't have to be a senior person, but a person in on the earlier side. And even to your point about like, hey, an outside agency may have media relationships that you'd have difficulty bringing in-house. One thing I've, I've talked to founders about is, hey, remember that firm you've hired has 10 other clients and is trying to get 10 more. So they yes, they have a lot of relationships in the media, but they've got to be 
judicious about where they fire yeah. their bullets. Yep. So how do you even get on the top of the heap of the firm you're working with to make sure you get the the primo opportunities? And maybe if you have someone internally who's kind of managing that relationship day to day, you're more likely to more apt yep. to get to where you want to be. I mean, one of the things that is, I think, sort of true in life, Mary, this might be an overstatement, that success breeds success, momentum breeds momentum, and winning is sexy. So if you start to build— I'm writing that down. If you start building momentum and showing a little bit of success, momentum is a terrible thing to waste. you got to jump on. Even the littlest bit of momentum can feed more momentum. Mm. So— Partly, everybody wants to be a part of the winner, particularly at an agency and people who are looking to just start at the company. So one of your jobs as a founder is to really feed and cultivate momentum and do not waste it. I'm very excited because uh, for the longest time I've been saying, if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me every once in a while, I'll, I'll chime in with, this gratuitous comment that I think one of the key jobs of a founder and a, and a, and a leader, CEO, is manager of momentum. Yeah. Uh, particularly in a startup. Totally agree with you. You've got to keep going up and to the right, yeah. and this crystallizes it for me. Success breeds success. Momentum breeds momentum. Winning is sexy. I think that's exactly <laughs> you said much better than I could. One of us is in marketing for a living. Uh, that is awesome. Okay, so when trying to put together a compelling message like that, You've talked about a model, which you call the RIVs model, relevant, inevitable, inevitable, believable, and simple. Yes. Can you give us an example or two of messages or communications that companies have uh, put together that you think fit that model well? So folks listening will have some sense for how how to apply that to their own companies? Yeah, I can go back on some that I got to work on years ago. One is Salesforce. So very early on, when you think about early CRM, it was not relevant to a big audience. It was relevant to a very, very specific audience. But the company's goal was to be relevant to a mass audience. So it already meant that... You would talk about success to customers, but then you would make sure that on a on a wider stage you were going to be relevant to a wider audience about the end of software. So that was part of it, where it was a it was a concrete decision, not just relevant to the people who will buy, but relevant to a bigger global stage. It fits the founder, it fits the company's vision, they could deliver on it. The inevitable thought was so first relevant, is it relevant? Mm-hmm. And to a wider audience, CRM wasn't relevant. So that's why the end of software was important. The end of software made it more relevant to a wider audience. And provocative, and too. Pro- right, exactly. Is that, is that part of being relevant? Yes. Well, okay. not always. Okay. You can decide as a company that you need to be relevant to this target audience. Like, I really need to sell to insurers or insurance agents. And literally, you can just nail relevance for them, and that's still winning. Got it. Okay. You can 100% still do that. You don't have to be relevant to the world. If you, again, if you're building momentum, you know, go be relevant to that small audience, win there, that's sexy, and then build on it. So Got it. be intentional on relevant. But if you don't pass the relevance game, nobody gives a flying, you know what. So, you know, you've got to answer the question why does anybody care? I mean, it could be my grandmother, and that's okay as long as that's who you want to have care. It's just you got to have somebody care, and they have to care. So relevant is the most important one. 
Inevitable is more like wind at your back, where you're going to have a sense where now is the time and you're going to play off what's going on in the market to convince people that you are the solution now. So this sense of people are tired of enterprise software, it's too expensive. So you do all the reasons why now. So Mm -hmm. what you're answering with the inevitable question is why now? The believable is why you? If you're a startup, nobody should believe it's you. So in ribs, the B, you should be failing it every day Mm. because you're small, you're new, there's some other big company that actually should be doing this. So your job is to go out there and put points unbelievable every day. Mm. Sorry, again, I'm mixing metaphors. No, but but like, I love that. I love that framework. You've got to like every day. What makes it that I'm going to be the one that wins here? Mm-hmm. So it, people, I know who cares. I'm already relevant to that group or this is relevant. People think, yeah, the world should work this way. Inevitable. It should. Yeah, sure. Believable. No, it's not going to be you. Shouldn't be you. You're small. You're new. So the point is, every day, go out there and convince people with your momentum and your launches. See, I said multiple and your products, yes, and your wins and your customers that you are the one that's going to be successful. And then simple is, you know, we all have the attention span of a gnat, so <laughs> don't overcomplicate it. End of software. There you go. That's really very powerful. Thank you. Does a company's communication strategy change as it grows? You know, maybe it, as simple as you become more believable, or you know, if if a founder is now moving through kind of startup land and has gotten into more growth stage, the things change, and what are they? What ought they be thinking about that might be a little different? Absolutely, it it a hundred percent changes. So who you're relevant to changes, and be super aware of that. Hopefully, it gets much much bigger. The inevitability, you've now convinced people you're a part of this, but that also means other people are now trying to take your position. The David and Goliath switches. And Mm. that means the believable is you've done a good job convincing people, but that also means that you might be peaking, and what usually happens after a peak is a down. So your your believable may turn into can you come back? (laughs) So it is a cycle, 100%. The relevance changes to who you're relevant for, the inevitable changes about, and the believable is a David and Goliath switch. Mm. Simple's the only one that stays. We've seen seen the David and Goliath switch even in our own portfolio. Like I think Square was a perfect example. We had Sarah Fryer on the show who at the time was CFO and head of ops at Square. She's now moved on and is now CEO at Nextdoor, which we're really happy for her about. But at her time at Square, you know, she presided over growth where they could do no wrong. First they were the, the little engine that could and no one really believed them and Companies like Verifone were trying to stamp them out. Then they became it became inevitable, and people started to believe, oh my God, Square could actually be this. And then right around the time of the IPO, the market just turned on them. Turned on. And it became like this could never work. And they had to reinvent the message, and it's obviously worked really well. It's worked um, really well. Yeah. That is a great example. Yeah. It is absolutely a cycle. If you get through the one turn, just brace yourself. The other one's harder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, people don't want to hear that. No, but you just then you get another and another. Like yeah. if you just think it goes up into the right, then you'll be disappointed. Yeah. If you no, know, no, no one, no one who listens to this podcast thinks that any longer. Okay, so, but if you know, then it's easier to deal with. Okay. So, speaking of like twists and turns, crises 
Yes. Are inevitable at startups. Yep. Uh, I haven't been involved in a single one that hasn't had some sort of crisis. Oh God! I thought you were going to say you haven't been involved in a crisis. <laughs> I'm no. like, what? Unfortunately, I've been doing this long enough where I've seen yeah. more than I can count. In times of crisis, how do you handle PR? Should you just hide your head under the pillow and pretend it goes away, not say anything intentionally, get really aggressive in the market? Should you hire, you know, there there are crisis PR mm-hmm. firm experts that you could go hire. Any words of wisdom? Because everybody's going to face one everybody's, thing or another. I think the biggest part is just take a breath, know that everybody goes through these things, and it will work out. Mm. Then there's all different flavors of that. If you could take the moment that you are in this crisis and fast forward six months from this moment, it will be different. So just know that you can take actions. I would go back to the brand lens that hopefully you've done because if you're a super aggressive company, then you should have aggressive outreach. If you're super quiet, I mean, the main thing is fix whatever the issue is, make sure that you understand it fully Mm -hmm. and that you learn from it. And then everything else is not as important. Should follow from there. Yeah. Do you ascribe to, you know, at Amazon, Jeff Bezos is sort of famous for saying, let's write the press release that we want out there and, you know, and then work backwards from it. Can you use that technique in a period of crisis? I think that if you write it down, it does really help people understand. And when things are difficult, it's easy to talk in the abstract. And the more you can put down in concrete, what do you know? When did you know it? What are you doing about it? Mm. It does help you understand, then clarify. I think people get this backwards. The communications is incredibly important, but it is the tail on the dog. Really know what dog you have because it will help you understand a ton. That's great feedback. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. As I mentioned before, you're on the Zendesk board. Love Uh, it. Yeah, and we actually have had Mikkel. Mikkel's been on the, on the show earlier. Mikkel's amazing. His, his episode is awesome. For those of you who haven't heard you it, should, I recommend I, going searching in our archive for it. One of the funniest, smartest people you can talk to. Yeah, he's great. So my question for you is, obviously, I assume it's been a, a good experience for you. You've been on the board now for a while. For a while, yeah. Do you think founders ought to find people with your kind of background, you know, marketing and communications execs for their board? Is that... Is that a you know? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, know. I guess it depends on the company. I'm the host. You're I the know. Guest. Well, I don't know. I felt like I would be selling. Yeah. Like, yes. You know what? You should all have me on your board. No, I don't yeah. know. Look, I think <laughs> you, the thing is, you have limited slots yeah. if you're a founder and you're adding you know outside board members. You're going to have some VCs if you raise a VC. You know, if you raise venture capital. So then the question is, who else would complement? And I have to say that although our overlap was fairly brief on the Zendesk board, I was amazed by the perspective you could bring, even though this wasn't your product. It was really a unique and fresh perspective, and that got me thinking. I think what's more typical is an independent who you know, is a former CEO, who can be kind of a CEO coach to a, a founder, or sometimes like somebody with a great Rolodex in that industry who can help open doors. Those are valuable too, but somebody who really understands how to bring together a, an appropriate message and then amplify that you know, through a good comm strategy, consolidate around certain brand features. Like that's also really valuable. And as I mentioned, you know, this is like one of the big conundrums most founders face in tech. It's just so hard to get right that I think there's there's some value there. That that'd be my well, answer. It's, it's been tremendous and wonderful to be on the Zendesk board. So I appreciate it. Well, we 
as shareholders, we appreciate all that you've done. Okay, so so we're gonna end the episode with the light with the lightning round. I'm gonna ask you a couple questions. Okay, you're on the hot seat. Great. Just uh, say the first thing that comes in your mind. We'll spend just a coffee a minute on each one. Okay. Oh, wait, you didn't ask anything. <laughs> your your favorite tagline or slogan from a communications campaign for a tech company. End of software. Okay, that was that was an easy. That one. was easy. Yeah, that and still that, it's still good. It is still good. <laughs> I still like the the whole like, kind the of whole circle the line, with the line circle with the line it. through. See how it. simple that is. It's simple and it was great. It was great. That that has stood still. the test of time. What's a book you'd recommend, Karen, for oh. you know for founders, maybe in your area of expertise that you think uh, founders should read? I'm a huge fan of Jim Collins, who wrote the Good to Great, Built yeah. to Last, and Great by Choice. I cannot recommend those three books enough. He is tremendous, and Great by Choice is his latest, and it's it's just a hundred percent worth reading. Okay. It is it is phenomenal. He is phenomenal. All right, everybody, we're going to see a little surge on Jim Amazon Collins, after this episode go, drops. Go read. Yes. What's something that you believe that you think is controversial that most other people don't believe? That you can drink coffee all day. <laughs> Is that, is that wrong? I think a lot of people believe that. They do? Okay. <laughs> I think that any of these, here's what you should do, I just put should in air quotes, needs to be looked at. So hmm. at Salesforce early on, it was so, the common knowledge was you never market something with a negative. Hmm. And so it was like, yes, that's a terrible thing. That's the number one thing you shouldn't do. And it was like, well, no, it's it actually really works for this company. Now, should everybody run out and do that? Absolutely not. But there's some version of should in air quotes to your company that you should challenge. So to challenge conventional wisdom challenge for, for right, yeah. but not for no reason. Like, not for see no if reason. It actually, sometimes it's conventional. Like, don't put your finger in the, in the socket for you know. Sometimes there's a reason for them. So great. Well, Karen, this has been a phenomenal episode. <laughs> People are going to get a ton out of it, and in particular, not now everybody knows not to. Put their finger Don't put in, your finger in, in, the socket. in the socket. Thank you so much for spending time with us on Founder Real Talk. This has been great. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social, and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobyte, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.